You're listening to a 3CR podcast created in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au. You're listening to a 3CR podcast created in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au. There is a place where time stands still. Where nature is harsh and demanding. Where only the quick and the strong and the deadly can survive. This place is no place for civilized man. It's Annie for Showreel and what a great program we've just been listening to down at Barack Beacon, uh, the outrageous destruction of public housing in Victoria because apparently social housing and slum landlords are the go for the future and also the subsidising of uh, uh, rich people by subsidising rents, uh, private rentals. Incredible uh, policy um, uh, what is it? Uh, shifting of sh- of seats. Uh, you know, uh, quite amazing that uh, we should, uh, the poor should be subsidising the rich in this way. Extraordinary piece of slice of uh, policy hand. Uh, but we're not talking about that on show. Where we're talking about other things. We're talking about films, uh, Australian films in particular. And uh, lately, we've been uh, talking about films that have been focused. Uh, highlighted at the Melbourne Documentary Film Festival, which is coming to its end, actually. Uh, There's been a couple of uh, smash hits at the um, uh, festival, which are getting second runs, but uh, we're going to focus on a couple that haven't had their first screening yet. The first one is These Two Hands. It's a multi-award winning Australian film, which tells the story of Tom Bowen, who's a cement worker and uh, who... uh, was uh, famous for creating the Bowen Technique, which if you have any uh, awareness of alternative therapies, you will be aware of the Bowen Technique. Anyway, this is a film about that, and it's a very, very local affair. I had a chat with the director, Sean uh, Dobram. Uh, It's going to be screened at the Nova on Friday, tomorrow at 6.20. But here's my chat with... uh, uh, Young Sean. Oh, well, I've been a filmmaker now for over 10 years. I did a Bachelor of Film Production at SA University, and I I was always inspired by films when I was younger, and um, they made a big difference in my life in in terms of being connected with humanity and and learning and education and inspiration. And and so I always knew I wanted to be a filmmaker because I felt it was a great medium to make a difference in the world and really you know, share a positive message and uplift people. So they're the sort of films I like to make. It's something that's really going to make a difference. What gravitated you to this story? What actually gravitated to me to this story was my sister. So she was actually a bone therapist um, at the time, and we were making a video for her business. 
And I started to ask her questions about the therapy because I knew it was quite a, a big therapy in Australia anyway, and it is all around the world, but I didn't know much about it. When she started to answer the questions and she said that it was an Australian guy, I started to get very curious, but she didn't have much answers for me. And the more I researched, the more I found it was quite mysterious that it was just this guy from Geelong in Australia who actually worked at a cement works. You know, he was like a a, a person, like an actual, you know, just a normal Australian bloke. He somehow started to discover a gift within his hands and this intuitive ability to be able to heal people and work out what was wrong with people just by looking at them and just by putting his hand over them. And he was having, you know, people from all around the country coming to see him for treatment. Yeah, and there's lots of elements to the making of this film. Like you've got several strands running through the film. So there's testimonials, but then there's this uh, reenactments, which means, of course, you've had to uh, create a um, drama at the same time as a documentary. So, I mean, that's quite an interesting approach, isn't it? Yeah, it is a very interesting approach. And it really, you know, we did actually write a script um, early on and it had that in it. I really love stories, the, the story side of filmmaking and documentaries. And so I thought, you know, how can we do it where it's educational and it's also really captivating? And I think that adding in those those different elements of drama and, you know, actors and story and going back into the history and really bringing that to life, as well as with experts of today who are doing that sort of work and what they're uncovering and also the testimonials that you mentioned as well, and just sort of combining it all together into one mesh that creates a really interesting um, film that has, like you said, all these different elements. And you actually act the part of one of the key characters, which is quite an interesting development for you, I presume. Yeah, it was. Um, it wasn't something that was ever planned. Um, I mean, I but but I, I guess maybe somewhere in the back of my head it was. I always loved acting as well, and in this particular film, we were struggling to find a a person to fit the role of Ozzy with our low budget and what we could afford to to pay and the amount of time that it would take. And um, my sister turned to me and said, "Well, have you ever thought about you playing it?" And I said. I would love to. Do you think I suit the character? And then we just started working with it. It's quite interesting, isn't it, too, because this Aussie character, I mean, Aussie's in the film and he's actually quite a delightful person. Yeah, he's a very charming guy, um, really, really friendly guy. And he's just, you know, he's a farmer who went from being living in Hamilton his whole life in the the country. And um, because of the story and because of his wife that he was, at the time, you know, his girlfriend that he was committed to, he embarked on this journey to help her and that led him to meeting this mysterious man, Tom Bowen. And then he had to really transform himself because he fell in love with this work and made a promise to Tom that he would take it to the world. So he had to turn from a farmer into this really tenacious um, sort of entrepreneur to make, to take what Tom had because Tom was just a, a healer and actually bring it to the world which obviously comes with a lot of challenges when you try to bring something that's unknown and you take it to the world and he's done an incredible job at that it's a very working class story a healer with people coming to him to heal them is fascinating because there was so much uh need for this person to help people that it wasn't just that they found that he got results but there was so much need it would appear yeah, yeah. It, it, it seems like um, everybody was getting injured um, and maybe there just wasn't enough. You know, maybe the health system at the time wasn't needing 
meeting the people's needs and the amount of people that were being injured or the amount of sickness that was happening at that time. And I guess people were looking for quicker solutions and someone that they could come and find. And, and um, that naturally evolved from Tom working at the cement works to then people coming to his place at night. So he had a nighttime clinic in which at first he was just working on people for free. Um, but then he had to, you know, so many people were coming that he had to give up his job at the cement works and open up this full-time clinic. And the number of people actually, we we're just talking about this last night, the number of people that he was treating uh, when they did in the government didn't inquire because there were so many people coming there. And it was an official inquiry. And over the six-week period, they sent experts to watch him to try to figure out what he was doing. And they noted in that inquiry that he was treating, on, on based on that six-week period, that over the whole 12 months, he was treating 13,000 patients per year. And if you average that out on like a five-day-a-week working schedule, uh, that equals 50, 50 to 60 patients per day, which is an enormous number. I mean, my... My sister's a therapist and she gets exhausted from treating, you know, eight patients a day. It, it's not very hard for people to believe that this is, uh, uh, um, well, the term healer and that there's, you know, there's a sort of a mystical element to this, what was happening. And also Tom Bowen, from your reports, believed that it was a gift from God. Well, that's the account of Oswald Wrench. And yeah, he, that's what he said that um, Tom said to him. You know, I think he was, he was a person who believed in God and he was a very intuitive person and he, he had a very spiritual side to him. And I think that led him to understand stuff that at that time science couldn't understand. And as you would have seen in the film, now there's people who are, you know, the, the science community is really uh, accepting the fascia. And so the experts that have studied bond therapy and fascia are sort of combining the two and saying that maybe this this fascia thing has a spiritual aspect to it um, yeah. because it is literally the matrix of our of our entire body and it's not something you know we've in the past we've always looked at the body as bones and muscles but there's this whole intelligence inside of it because your script is very clever because you don't come to conclusions but you actually explore which I find a really fascinating approach yeah that's right but just to kind of open up people's thinking about the body a bit more because it's obviously as time goes on in the science world, things do evolve. And I think that takes a while for the general public to catch up on. Which actually leads us to how you describe that or visually, because of course film is a visual medium. You actually do some animation and stuff like that. So that was another element to your film. Yeah, there is some animation of um, the fascia, the fascia, but there is also some real footage of the fascia as well. So Dr. Um, Robert Schleip and, and um, other people um, have actually recorded the fascia and they gave us rights to use the footage in the film to showcase what's actually like. So you could actually see that net in the in the film. And so the theory behind the work is that when that net dries up, that's when injuries start to resolve or an injury might cause that to dry up. And if you can bring hydration back to the, to the networks, then automatically healing takes place. How much of your life has been taken up with making um, these two hands the story of Bowen therapy? It was a independent project. So we had to raise all the funds, you know, on our own. And, and we, you know, we had a bit, of, we had a lot of support from the Bowen community to do that as well. Some of the associations helped with that. But I mean, you know, it was a long process just to raise the, enough funds to get started and then to continue to raise the funds to keep going. And a lot of it to, to complete it, I mean, the budget did run out almost halfway through and we just had to keep going and keep pushing through. So it took 
six years since we started the project. I've spoken to filmmakers who have been working on projects for longer than that. So you've actually done quite an amazing thing. Yeah, to have the, to have it completed and then also to be doing, you know, quite quite well in the film festival circuit. Um, it's won three awards now in the US. That is a really, um, really great feeling. Tell me about the editing because you had various strands that you had to pull together. Editing is like a film like that is just <laughs> such a challenge. First of all, we recorded, I, I believe, over 50 interviews with different speakers. And some of those interviews were an hour long. Some of them were 30 minutes. Right there, you've just got an enormous amount of footage and you've got to take pieces from every single part and watch it through and try to connect them together to tell a story and to, to tell a story that somewhat matches the script that you've written for that film. But obviously it's never going to stick to that script because it's a, it's a documentary. It's going to unfold before your eyes. But you, from the research, you can kind of get an, a guide of where you want to take the film. But as you start to see it pieced together, it's quite fulfilling. Through the editing process, you know, and especially once the um the, the story side of it kicked in with the actors and Ben D. Costello playing, playing Tom Tom Bowen and then the speakers talking about, you know, you know, near the end of Tom's life. I must have cried 20 times in the process of editing that film. You're happy that uh, you're in the Melbourne Documentary Film Festival? It's just such a like it's it's such a great thing, especially because it's Melbourne, and that's the story is based in you know not Melbourne, but Tom would often come to Melbourne, and it's a Melbourne-based story. That's well, obviously it's in Geelong, but that's the closest main city to Melbourne. So yeah, it's, it's just so wonderful, and it's such a great um, festival to be a part of. You're on 3CR with Annie on Showreel and we were just having a chat with Sean Dobra. His film, These Two Hands, The Bowen Therapy Story, is on at Novo. It's part of the Melbourne Documentary Film Festival. It's on on Friday at 6.20pm. It just goes to show the... uh, uh, extent and uh, variety of the different films and documentaries that people are making in Australia. Uh, the the festival has films coming from all over the world, but there's a strong contingent of Australian filmmakers and their stories. It's quite fascinating. Um, yeah, it's it, it was quite fascinating to watch that film because uh, it is incredibly local. I mean, this kind of almost um, mystical sort of uh, medical. Uh, uh, phenomenon that happened, you know, over the, I think it's sort of like 60s and 70s. It's quite fascinating. Anyway, um, and coming out of the uh, working class in Geelong, quite interesting stuff. Uh, we, well, now we're going to turn our attention to a, um, a program of films that's going to be shown at the Nova as part of the Melbourne Documentary Film Festival that is on a very sobering subject. It's about suicide. Uh, it's on Saturday the 29th at 10.30am. And the first film is This Man's Worth, uh, which was around um, the uh, d- different journey of two men, Graham and Michael. One survived and one didn't in relation to this uh, struggle for uh, a positive future. Um, but w- the other film that's on that program is Solstice. Uh, when 15-year-old Mary died by suicide, her parents were met with shame and stigma. They refused to be silent. It's a film directed by Helen Newman. 
And it's also a very local story. It's uh, centred in uh, a country city in Victoria. Uh, This is my chat with Helen Newman. So I began making Solstice back in 2018 and that was when I connected with a family in my hometown, Albury, which is where I'm based on the New South Wales big border. And they lost their daughter to suicide back in 2011. Um, She was 15 years old. And their journey to losing her was, a, a large part of that journey was not being able to get the help that she needed, the right help that she needed, right mental health supports. And then once Mary took her life, they then found themselves very isolated. The stigma, the fear around death and suicide death particularly kind of overtook the way people interacted with them. So they refused to accept that and they they um, instead then went on this journey of creating a, a, a space within our hometown where people can come and talk about mental health and suicide and the grief of suicide in a safe and accepting space. And it's really created this unique, quite incredible event that happens on the longest night of the year, on the winter solstice. And then from there, they've just expanded out to just reach out to anyone who will journey with them to break that horrible, heartbreaking silence that surrounds suicide loss and also mental health, unfortunately, still. I began documenting that way back when we had no budget, really wasn't sure what the film was even about. You know, was it about youth suicide? Was it about mental health and the system? As time went on, what I discovered was the voices that were at the fore, like on the front line of trying to create that change in the mental health system were often people who had lost someone to suicide. So people who I think know too intimately the true cost of a failed mental health system and those that they're the ones that are left behind when we lose someone. Yeah, it's interesting, isn't it? Because people live in a security bubble, which they're unaware of until something quite tragic happens to them. And then Mm. there's a sense that you're looking in to the world that other people live in. But then, of course, that kind of tragedy happens to many people. Yeah, it does. And and that's the thing that Stuart, Mary's father, says before Mary became ill, they had an idyllic life, an idyllic family life. You know, they're well-known within our community, they're well-respected, they're well-educated, well-resourced, they had a comfortable life. And the other thing then that, you know, Annette, Mary's mother says, she doubts now from where they are that there's no one who would not know someone who struggled with mental health or has lost someone to suicide. So we are all touched by it in varying degrees. It's It's very, very common, yeah. In Mary's case, she actually did, she left breadcrumbs as to her sense of uh, deep depression. Part of the the film really investigates how badly our system support a person in her position. Yes, and I like that phrase that you use, breadcrumbs, because she did. She was a 15-year-old girl who'd been struggling with um, an eating disorder for three years, a very misunderstood, very serious illness, And she used her writing and she tried really hard. And as they say, she was very compliant. She tried to do all the right things. She was just given completely the wrong treatment because there's so little understanding around that. Um, And there are so many other people who this film 
touches on that didn't even leave breadcrumbs. They were screaming for help and just didn't get any as well. Yeah. Stuart and uh, Annette are actually leading uh, community members in their community. I mean, he was the mayor. Uh, These are people who have agency. Because of the type of people that they are, they had to turn this into something that was more positive. So tell us about the solstice event. That was a really big uh, public statement, wasn't it? Yeah, and just to take a step back from that in the film, you know, just after Mary had died, they made another very big public statement and they held Mary's funeral in our town square, in our main square, in, in the centre of our, on our main street. So I think they were already the people who were not going to be silent. They were already the people that were in a strong enough position to be able to do that as well in terms of their standing in the community. And they're just their sheer determination. That's who they are. That's their nature as well. There's a poignancy that the very same ground on where they held Mary's funeral is the ground where we gather every year to remember people who have been lost by suicide. And this event has grown um, over the, well, we just had the 11th one last month. We have thousands of people who come into this dark, cold, open space. There are fires dotted around, which, you know, if you're very clever, you get there early, so you get close to a fire because it's damn cold. (laughs) It's a unique space where I see people crying and laughing and hugging and knowing they're in a safe space. It's a very rare space. I've observed that, you know, we, we certainly are afraid of talking about grief and loss. But if you overlay that with with loss through suicide, it just adds a whole other dimension to the awkwardness and the fear around discussing it openly. And in this square, on this night, it, that's exactly what happens. So it's very precious and very special. Um, having been brought up in a country town which is of similar size to Aubrey, um, I find this a fascinating experience as well because... Uh, it gives a completely different dimension from a city experience, doesn't it? One of the things about cities is it allows distance. While yeah. in a in a, a country community, it uh, it actually has greater proximity. And so, when you're dealing ah. with something of this nature, it's I mean, the gossip chain in a country town is quite an extraordinary affair, really. <laughs> Okay, yes, I, I see where, where you're coming from and absolutely I agree. It's And we there are people who are not able to go for that very reason, that sense of being exposed in a community that will know them. Yeah, for sure. What is kind of interesting, though, is, you know, in one part of the film near to the end, um, there's the story goes to Corion where sadly there have been several lives lost to suicide following the Black Summer fires and last year they held their own version of a winter solstice. So we're talking a very, very small village size where everybody does literally know everybody and they held their own small version of a winter solstice up there as a response to those suicides. And I attended that and I saw people standing back on the fringes, similar to what they do in in Aubrey, and then gradually as time comes on they just come in as they realise it's safe and it's okay. So that was really heartening to see that it can even happen in like a tiny village as well. So, yeah, I think it's definitely possible to happen in a city. 
Well, you know, solstice is a really fascinating time to choose as well because it has its, uh, I mean, it's the uh, shortest uh, period of the year. Um, um, it has a very strong uh, uh, human-hearted, centred uh, element to it, doesn't it, uh, that part of the uh, year, really? Yeah, for sure. And, and, and the symbolism around the journey through a mental illness to a place where you're well is, is symbolised so well by that, you know, that longest night. It's dark for something like 14 hours that night or even longer. And so I think there's a strength of symbolism in that. And, and I, I love that that weaves actually personally into the baker's story in terms of that's always been a symbol for them. They're very active outdoor family, so they crave the light to be in. So, uh, yeah, it's a beautiful marriage of those two, that both that personal and public symbolism. Yeah, I was really taken by the fact that the film then went international. I thought I loved that um museum in London that was such a fabulous concept and truly that was me just following Annette and Stuart and they will go to the ends of the earth to um, do what they think will create change and so yeah they went to London to be part of this international movement which they are connected to that's a global movement to try and challenge the way at a policy level how mental health is supported and legislated. I think for me when they went to London I it was a wonderful turn in the story for me to take it to that broader level. But it was so touching because the museum actually honoured Mary's existence. I thought that was just so touching. Yeah and I, I know you know when, when Stuart says as they're heading off I don't know how I'll feel about all the other speakers speaking and Mary's speaker being on silent because she was the only person represented in that museum who had taken her life. Everyone else had struggled with their mental illness but was still alive and many of them were in that room but Annette and Stuart was Mary, were Mary's representatives there. So, you know, the, the, the sheer bravery that they face each time they put themselves into a public space like that, I just have so much admiration for that. You uh, are going to be at the Melbourne Documentary Film Festival and it's going to be a Q&A, so that's a pretty interesting uh, thing for uh, another uh, example of public exposure. Yes, yes, it is. And Stuart, um, Mary's dad, will also be part of that Q&A. And, um, you know, again, that's just I have so much respect for the, the way that they journey through this, willing to expose themselves and often afterwards going, you know, if one person, if it, if it helps one person, that, that makes it worthwhile. And uh, that was my chat with uh, filmmaker Helen Newman, who has made a film called Solstice, which uh, documents the, uh, the journey of the parents of a young suicide person, uh, 15-year-old Mary, who uh, have started an event called Solstice in Aubrey that uh, the, lo- the shortest day of the year that then opens up uh, to the sunlight at the end of that dark period. And it's about uh, uh, mental health uh, and surviving uh, a crisis uh, for people. That's what they're trying to do. They're trying to give more support to people who who might be in that frame of mind. If you uh, have been a bit uh, disturbed by that, uh, the subjects in the uh, program today, you can 
um, contact Lifeline 13 11 14. The uh, film is going to be shown at, uh, Solstice is going to be shown on Saturday the 29th at uh, Nova. It's part of the Melbourne Documentary Film Festival. There will be a Q&A. It's partnered with another film called This Man's Worth. Uh, it starts at 10.30am. Uh, the Melbourne Documentary Film Festival, I'll just give you, uh, it's coming to the, its last weekend. Uh, there's going to be a few other films being shown in early August because they were such, they were uh, festival smash hits, so they're getting a return engagement. So look up on the uh, Nova website. Coming up next is uh, Published or Not, and we'll go out with an M. Donovan song. Judge you, girl, when you come through my door. You got a friend, a friend with an open heart. Get a friend, a friend you can call. Don't forget when you're down and in darkness, I can pick you up in the hardest. Said I'll be there for you, and I'll be the one to help you through. If you're shame, I can see it in your face. I've been there and I know that place So pick up your lid, take a lift up Keep your head up, feel the love Take, take a lift from me, girl Keep, keep me in your reach, girl Take, take a lift from me, girl Keep, keep me in your reach, girl When you're down and in darkness I can pick you up in the heartache oh, Said I, I'll be there for you And I'll be the one to help pull you through Don't feel shame, I can see it in your face I've been there and I know that place So pick up your lip, take a lip, girl Keep your head up, feel the love You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.